program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. Much like today's movie I'll be talking about in depth, something happened 30 years ago that became so iconic that I don't think anything has ever been able to live up to it in terms of this world of characters. On September 5th, 1992, Batman the Animated Series premiered on Fox TV. 30 years later, and it's still probably the greatest thing DC has ever released. And that's in terms of, you know, series, movies, animated movies. And and don't get me wrong, the animated movies that have come out from DC, for the most part, more or less have always been really good, if not great. I mean, some of them have been outright amazing. Dark Knight Returns Parts 1 and 2, that was eventually made into a mega movie. Is It's almost perfection. Justice League Doom is a great one. Um, Justice League, uh, what is it? Uh, Throne of Atlantis. That's a really good one. That was a really good like Aquaman origin story, and it worked really well and stuff like that. There's been some great ones. There really has. Um, the Justice League TV series was awesome. But none of that happens if Paul Dini and Bruce Tim don't give us Batman the Animated Series. That was the one that started it all. And still to this day, it's like the benchmark that almost nobody can reach. And that, I'm talking about all the different Batman movies. And yes, I know, a lot of people love Michael Keaton's Batman. He's a great Batman. I love him too. I'm no different than anyone else. I like Christian Bale's Batman. I like Robert Pattinson's Batman. The George Clooney Val Kilmer thing, I'll debate another day. Because there's elements they do right, and then there's elements they do very wrong. Um, And sometimes that wasn't necessarily their fault. I think that more had to do with Schumacher than anything else. But anyways, back to Batman the Animated Series. Every single episode was awesome. There was always something good about every episode. These were the stories that fans always wanted to see on the screen. These are the stories that fans go to when they say, if you want to make a live action movie, do this. 
You know, it, the Batman the Animated Series is what made Kevin Conroy the Batman that nobody can let go of. As much as we all have our favorite live-action Batmans, Kevin Conroy still is the epitome of Batman. Mark Hamill is still the epitome of the Joker. I mean, and think about that. Like, first to start off as Luke Skywalker, and then you come along and practically rival that with what might be the best Joker of all time. And every episode was like this. Voice acting was perfect. The animation was perfect. I have it on both DVD and Blu-ray because I'm like that. But (laughs) also the fact that I like watching my DVDs because it's got that old TV look to it because they weren't remastered. And then I watch the Blu-ray and I watch the episodes pop off my screen and they look gorgeous and beautiful. And it's like, it's almost like reliving it for the first time all over again. And it's just... I saw it hit 30 years, 30, 30th anniversary for Batman the Animated Series. And I know this is a horror and science fiction podcast and comic book superheroes really don't have their place in this podcast. Well, I might change that sometime. But anyways, um, my point is, is that I couldn't not start this episode talking about Batman it would have felt wrong to me especially being the first podcast I ever created was a comic book based podcast Batman is Batman is something that has been in my life since birth like I that's all I know you know my whole existence has known Batman is what I'm trying to say so I was like I got I got to make a nod to this cuz 30 years later and still we have yet to have something come out from DC that we go, okay, Batman, you are now second. It, it may never happen. It may never happen. But on that note, let's move on to this week's episode. Because coming to you from the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero, we're going right down to hell this week. Yep. We're going to hell with some S&M, some chopped flesh, some weird creatures of the dark. I'd like to welcome you all back to What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul, and this week, 1987's Hellraiser. Yeah. I'm finally, and here's a weird thing. You know that thing they call the Mandela effect where it's like, we think something existed, but it really didn't, but we could swear it existed? I could have swore I did Hellraiser as an episode before. <laughs> I went through my whole catalog of episodes. I'm like, I know I did Hellraiser. I know I did it. I never did it. Ne- I've done Freddy movies. I've done Jason's. I've done Michael Myers. I've even done Sam. (laughs) It's like, I never talked about Pinhead. Well, Hell Priest. Lead Cenobite. Whatever you want to call him. Okay, there's a whole thing. I know on the internet people like to be like, Oh, it's the Hell Priest because that's what it said in the Scarlet Gospels. And some people are like, Oh, it's Pinhead because that's what he's always been. It doesn't matter. Honestly, it really doesn't. (laughs) I... And I'm that guy that more times than not, I refer to him as Hell Priest myself because I understand that the characters were genderless. So 
calling it hell priest sort of takes away but then pinhead really can be male or female or genderless as well but it will get all into that this week um because there's some progressive themes that go on in hellraiser that i don't think people were aware of that they were always there and now they're complaining about this new one but we will get all into that in a bit because i first want to talk off talk off talk about some things i've been kind of seeing reading watching stuff like that starting off with i'm gonna talk about this just quickly i'm not done it yet so i can't come up with final thoughts but i've been watching on netflix the chilling adventures of sabrina and you're like wow that came out of left field <laughs> what the fuck um you know, when it first was released, I did want to watch it. As a matter of fact, I did watch the first episode. But you know, I'm thinking I might have fallen asleep when I watched it. <laughs> because when I went and rewatched it this time, and I was watching that episode one, there was a lot of stuff. I'm like, I don't remember that. I don't remember. Was I awake when I watched this thing? Like, what the fuck? Anyways. So, yeah. I've started watching it again and I'm uh, about midway through the second part of season one okay I guess it's in four parts why Netflix makes things so complicated just call them seasons but anyways so I guess season one is parts one and two and season two was parts three and four well I'm midway through part two um I'll say this okay so I understand that it comes from the same world is Riverdale Riverdale I actually don't mind but I kind of got out of it for a while and I just haven't jumped back into it so but anyways I understand this is a teen drama so I go in with that expectation right and I will say despite a few cringy moments um for the most part I like what I've seen so far I know there's been complaints about it being that favorite word of mine woke okay um, I, I tend to find, I, this is something that's sort of really annoying me these days, but I mean, it's the world we live in and I can't escape it. That if we have some sort of like progressive kind of thought process in our film, our films or our TV series right away, it's woke. Um, I really wish someone would explain to all the people that say that, that woke is a past tense word that means you woke up from sleep <laughs> but we can't seem to wake up to the fact of the definition of that word but anyways that's that is a whole nother topic um but yeah like the thing is is yes there are some really forced themes in this show and i'm not gonna lie there's been a couple times myself even i'm rolling my eyes going wow could you make it any more obvious like what happened to subtlety but at the same time, I do love a lot of the dark references. I love the fact that they're not afraid to say the word Satan in this show. Like, like they're literally jamming the Dark Lord down your throat. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm all right with it. You know, witchcraft is a tough genre. Like, the, the whole witchcraft, witchery genre is one that's tough to do. Because do you do it more straight-laced in, like, in the ideas of you know, the actual Wicca practices, or do you go over the top hokey like Hocus Pocus where they're riding broomsticks and stuff like that? So, I mean, it's 
how do you balance that, right? So the fact that this show decided to say we are going full-on Satanism, but Satanism is going to be a metaphor for a lot of things that are not accepted in the world, and I'm like, all right. Like, I can handle that. Like, I sort of like that element of satire and, you know, tongue-in-cheek subtlety. But then there's some stuff that in the show it's like, literally, it's like, we get it. You're dark and satanic. We understand. Um you know, I so it, it's one of those shows where I'm like, take it with a grain of salt. I walked into it really not expecting to like it. So the fact that I walked away liking many elements of it, I'm like, all right. The score by Adam Taylor is amazing. I will say that. And it's beautifully shot. The, the cinematography for the Sabrina show is very, very good. I know that the show is done. I know there's no more seasons coming and whatnot, and I know they continued some of the stories in comic book form. There's two episodes of Riverdale I'll have to watch to get some closure on a certain storyline. I know about all that. I mean, the show has been done since 2020, so I know not to expect anything else, so I'm just going into it, watching it, being like, okay, this is what it was. Um, I, I liked it it's so far. and. I've heard a lot of people say that by the time I got to the end where there was, you know, the finale and whatnot, it wasn't that good. Okay, well, you know what? I'll give it a shot. I will say this, though. there, <laughs> As much as, like I said, there's a lot of heavy-handedness to this show. And the one thing that did kind of put a devilish grin on my face was seeing that certain statue. And if you've seen this show, you know what statue I'm talking about. Only because I remember that, I think it was back in like 2015, I think it was, that actual statue that represents the Church of Satan was erect in Detroit, Michigan, across the river from me. And I remember all the controversy that came with that because people were like freaking out because it was showing the goat incarnation of Satan with two children by him and blah, 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 blah. And people were like, freaked. <laughs> and I remember that. and I, So it was... When I see that in this show, I'm like, oh, that was an, I, I know they got in trouble for that, too. But um, because the Church of Satan did go after the show, and I know there was some settlement they had to make. I, I believe it was made out of court. I, I'm not going to lie. I didn't research into it. But, I mean, overall, like, the, the show is it's fun for what it is. Um, I don't think it's something that people have to really get so butthurt about, but they will. Um for what for what I'm seeing so far, I enjoy it. Probably when I'm finished, I will have sort of like a probably a, a mini review, you know, basically talking about what I like and don't like about it. But but like I said, from what I've seen so far, I like the show. It's kind of cool. Uh, something else that uh, was announced in the media since my last episode, and. I'm torn. I'm torn, damn it. Killer Clowns from Outer Space, the video game. I should be to the moon about this shit. I mean, come on. The game looks great from what we've seen so far. The trailer they put out there looks awesome. But it's a 3 versus 7 online multiplayer game only. No story mode. I know, done in a similar fashion to, like, Friday the 13th, and there's that upcoming Texas Chainsaw Massacre game that's going to be done the same way. The whole Dead by Daylight fucking 
platform. That, that whole thing. I get it. I know why it exists. They're easy games to make. And you can incorporate your friends. But what if you're that guy that doesn't have friends? And I know you're saying that's kind of shitty to say. But there are people in the world that sometimes... Video games for them means watching it or watching it, playing it by themselves. Like, I'm a guy, okay, I've got friends. I hang out with people. But when I do video games, I do them by myself. Because, one, I take longer to learn mechanics to games than other people. I hate playing Call of Duty. I liked playing it with my friends, but I hated playing it because I'm the guy that's always at the bottom of the list because I get, like, three kills to everybody's 400. Like... (laughs) I'm not I take a while to learn games. So this is why I like story modes. This is why I like one player modes. Uh so when I saw Killer Clowns from Outer Space was coming out, I was like, yes! And then I saw it was like Evil Dead, and I'm like, no, why? And I'm gonna cry now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not I'm not actually crying. Here's here's the whole thing about this. This is why I'm torn. Because I love the idea that the killer clowns are getting their own game because I want to see Killer Clowns become big again. This is something, I, when I was in my teenage years, I saw Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I fell in love with this shit. I loved it. It was campy. It was stupid. It was it was awesome. You guys heard my review when I did, oh God, what was that? Episode was 32, I think? I, fuck, I've done it so long ago. I don't even remember what episode number it was. And I, I've always said, like, if I had a complaint about Killer Clowns from Outer Space, it was Grant Kramer. But, I mean, who am I to say? I'm not him, right? But the Kyotos themselves, they, their goal is to hopefully build up this brand again, build hype for the clowns again, so that more projects can spawn from this game. They have other ideas for more games, more stories. Possibly, hello, what everyone's been asking for for Three decades now. A sequel movie. Maybe this game does that. So, yeah, I I sit there and I cry about, oh, well, there's no one-player mode. But I like the fact that this game will bring awareness to the killer clowns from outer space. I still have friends today that I'll be talking about, and they're like, I've never seen that movie. Wait, what? But this game hopefully will bring awareness to the clowns so maybe we get that sequel movie. The Kyotos have been sitting on some idea for at least the last 10 years. I'd love to see the brothers get back together and make that sequel movie. So, in terms of the clowns getting their own game and getting so much love lately, I am all for it. We I went to Spirit Halloween a couple weeks ago, and there's killer clown shit everywhere. And I'm like, yes, I even bought a fucking clown mug myself. I was like, wait, what? They got killer clown mugs for my coffee? This is my cup for the year now. Like, I'm loving this shit. But unfortunately, because I'm that guy that doesn't do well in online multiplayer games. No single, you know, not having a single player mode kind of bums me out. But take the good with the bad because this may lead to something a lot better. I just recently I was seeing, you know, Joe Dante was talking about Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai's animated series. And I guess he's calling that Gremlins 3, which is interesting because just Two days after that interview came out, 
now there's reports that Warner Brothers, well, I know there's a whole thing going with Warner and Discovery right now, so who knows what's really true, but supposedly Warner Brothers may greenlight a third movie now? I don't know. It's, as far as I'm concerned, the third movie doesn't exist yet until I see it actually, you know, being filmed or being released. Because we could say, well, being filmed, yeah, say that to Batgirl. And we aren't seeing that movie, so <laughs> I'm not hurt. But uh, anyways, I will also say, because it was announced, Netflix's Resident Evil. Hey, remember that show, that series? Uh, well, canceled. After only one season. can honestly say I'm not shocked. I tried watching it. I still haven't finished it. Got four episodes left and I'm not in any rush to check them out. So I probably will now because it's been canceled. So I don't have to worry about, oh, well, this could have gone here or could have gone there. I And I do get there are people that actually did like the series. They did like the show where it was going and whatnot. Personally, for me, it wasn't my thing. But then again, I'm that weird guy that likes the Mila Jovovich films where people are like, those are fucking blasphemy. Well, whatever. <laughs> I like them. Finally, I'm going to talk about one more thing really quickly, and then we're going to get into the review of the week. Because this topic that I'm actually going to talk about ties in with the movie of the week. Hellraiser. Reimaginated. Re, 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 it, there's a reimagining. I don't know. If, is reimaginated a word? Am I making shit up now? I don't know. But in particular, Jamie Clayton and the reveal of the new Hell Priest. So they released this, like, it was, what, 13-second teaser trailer? And it's basically the word Hellraiser scrolling by, and in the lettering, you can see a silhouette of the new Pinhead. And sadly, the reception, while not being all bad, was actually kind of embarrassing in some levels. I I don't understand, okay? And maybe, maybe it's something with me. I don't know. I don't get why fans are worried about what sex the actor playing the role is. Especially when we're talking about characters that are androgynous, sexless, Cenobites. They are monsters of another realm. They're not human. They have human qualities, but not all of them. If you remember seeing the engineer in the first film, that sure as fuck didn't look human to me. So, <laughs> I don't know. Um... And nobody gave a shit what sex it was. I, I don't... I don't get it. And I know, like, I, I, I'm i that guy, too. I didn't like Hellraiser Judgment, and I didn't like Hellraiser Revelations. Partially because Doug Bradley wasn't a part of it, but also because the stories were very messy. They just didn't... You could say that about most of the sequels, to be honest. But, that being said... What the other sequels had that those two movies didn't have was Doug Bradley. And the whole Doug Bradley is the only pinhead argument. As much as I understand it, it's also old and tired. He hasn't done the last two movies. The Revelations, he walked away from. 
they approached him. They wanted him to do the fucking role. He said no. He didn't like the the way the scheduling was going to be for the filming. He didn't like aspects of the script. And he said, no, this feels all wrong. He walked away from it. And he was right because the movie was a mess. Um, And then, you know, what was it? Judgment comes out. He wasn't even asked to be a part of it because the studio figured he wanted nothing to do with Hellraiser anymore anyways. I don't know. I think also what's the even just okay, I posted the teaser trailer myself and saw comments coming up online of people saying, "Oh, well Doug himself says he hates this." Doug said he hates that they've cast someone else to be Pinhead. No, he's never said that. I mean, there was an article, I believe it was bloody disgusting put it out put it out years ago. Uh, when actually, what was it? Was it when judgment? No, it was revelations. It was coming out, I think. And he said he walked away from that one. He had nothing against someone else playing the role. He says, as a matter of fact, he knew it would happen one day. Um, I like that he at least has come to Jamie's defense, uh, through different articles that have been released through Fangoria, bloody disgusting screen rant and whatnot. Doug has been putting it out there and he even been, he's even been talking about it at, uh, conventions recently. He is in support of this new Hellraiser. And a lot of the reason being because Clive is a part of it. Him and him and Clive have like a a history long friendship. If Clive says, I have these ideas for Hellraiser and I think it's going to work. I'm pretty sure Doug's going to be like, all right, why not? The friends support each other. Like, that's what he would do. Um, Doug has come out in his own tweets, his own Twitter account. He put a tweet out saying that he was a huge fan of Sense8 and he wishes Jamie the best. He wishes Sense8 would have gotten more. He was disappointed it was canceled. Um, and he says good luck to her for being the new pinhead slash hell priest whatever you want to call it and that's great class act you know what i mean um but i saw so many shitty things that were said about jamie clayton being the new pinhead and it's like if you're really this upset about it then just don't watch it i'll be honest i haven't finished judgment and I watched half of it, and that wasn't on Paul Taylor either. Like I thought he actually was all right as Pinhead. I just I didn't care for the story. I'm hoping that with this, as long as the story is good for this new imagining of Hellraiser, I'm all on board. I know it's going to do a bit of a different story. It's not going to completely follow the Hellbound heart, but it's going to be something. That's what I want. I Clive is behind it, and I got to stand by Clive because Clive gave us the movie I'm talking about this week, and he's given us the history of the Cenobites, and he he, I, he would know. If anyone's going to know, it'll be him. So, I don't know. There was a lot of bullshit that was said on the internet, and a lot of talk, and I, I don't want to constantly always sound like I'm just crapping on the internet, but it's just... People hating things before it's even released bothers me. And I know you're going to say, hey, I listen to some of your old episodes. I know I was that guy too. But we say we want to change the way people view horror 
and horror films and the horror community, but then we all act like a bunch of idiots. And I don't know. Hellraiser's always been a progressive series, by the way, for those of you who may have not paid attention, because I know this woke argument comes up a lot. First off, it's null and void. Um, if you know anything about the Hellraiser story, the Hellbound Heart, Clive Barker's influences, the basis for the story, no, it's not a go-woke, go-broke movie. It, I mean, obviously, all the S&M and the progressive imagery of the 1987 film fell flat on some people when they saw it the first time. I'm assuming because there were definitely some progressive themes in and imagery in those movies first two specifically but i mean it didn't stop there i don't know i don't want to go on ranting you know what this is supposed to be a good episode happy episode i don't want to keep ranting and i've already taken up what almost half an hour of the runtime on this episode so look let's just face it, it Hellraiser comes out October 7th on Hulu, probably Disney Plus Star in Canada, hopefully anyways. Um, I think it's something that could really shock a lot of fans if they give it a chance. It, Clive is hands-on with this one. He's part. He's one of the producers. And last time he was hands-on with a Hellraiser movie, we had a winner on our hands. So let's jump into that. Let's go into the, the trailer timeout. We're going to talk about... Hellraiser when we return, and there's a lot to unpack with this movie. There's a lot of history to this movie, so let's let's focus more on the history, less on today's views on what's what and all that other stuff. Trailer timeout, kids. Back in a splat. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Understand? The figure beside the first speaker demanded. Its voice, unlike that of its companion, was light and breathy, the voice of an excited girl. Every inch of its head had been tattooed with an intricate grid, and at every intersection of horizontal and vertical axis, a jeweled pin driven through to the bone. Its tongue was similarly decorated. Do you even know who we are? it asked. They are the Order of the Gash. 
They are the Cenobites. They are the prison guards to hell. There's a whole thing about what the Cenobites are and how everyone has interpreted them and whatnot. i talk a bit about that in this review this week. So let's start. Hellraiser. Clive Barker's Hellraiser was released September 11th, 1987 in the UK and one week later on September 18th in Canada and the United States. Uh, And I actually believe there was one viewing on September 10th in London prior to the wide release in the UK. So if you really want to get technical, the first time the movie ever saw a theater screen was September 10th. Hellraiser, written and directed by Clive Barker, based on his novella, The Hellbound Heart. That novella has been shown all over the internet over the past several weeks. People showing they have the book, and people saying this is the book, that this is inspiring said new movie and whatnot. Yeah, Hellbound Heart came out prior to the Hellraiser film, so it technically is the source material. And, I mean, Clive has done some stuff since then. Hellraiser was technically his first feature film, and what a way to start. Uh, And since then, he's given us some of the greatest and darkest wonders, like Rawhead Rex, Candyman, Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, and The Midnight Meat Train which I don't talk about that movie enough. It's actually really good. Um, and Okay, so look, look at those titles, and then you've got Candyman recently had its resurgence with Nia DaCosta's spiritual sequel. Uh, Nightbreed is getting a TV series, I believe, headed to Hulu. Not 100% sure on that. Uh, Hellraiser has been reimagined and is coming to Hulu next month. Um... Rawhead Rex is one because the special effects are sort of dated now. Definitely dated. And it's not sort of. It's definitely dated. That's one I I, I wonder if I would want to see a, um, a remake or a reimagining of that. Uh, tough to say because I do kind of find the original entertaining in its own quirky way. But... Um, yeah, when you think about it, though, like some of these titles that I just mentioned are getting a resurgence. They're coming back to the forefront. And Hellraiser is the one coming October 7th. Yes, I'm eagerly anticipating that. I hope I'm not disappointed. I, I, but I'm eagerly excited for it. Hellraiser 1987 was produced by Christopher Figg. And he produced the first three Hellraisers. So one, two, uh, Hellbound, two, Hellraiser. um, And the third one was Hell on Earth. So those are the three he produced. He also did uh, movies like Dog Soldiers, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and Mandy. And I will say that I have not seen We Need to Talk About Kevin yet. And it has been pushed in my face several times that I need to see it. So, eventually I will get to it. Mandy, on the other hand, oh, fucking love it. Cinematography by Robin Vigion. I think I'm saying his, his name right. Uh, Robin also worked on Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. 
the Fly 2, Parents with uh, Randy Quaid, Nightbreed, Highway to Hell, and The NeverEnding Story 3. I know a lot of people don't like talking about that one, but hey, whatever. Moving on to the film's editors. And I bring this up. I don't normally talk about editors, but this is sort of interesting because the film was edited by Richard Martin, who also edited Hellraiser 2 and Nightbreed. But uncredited, Tony Randall, who was one of the producers, also helped with the editing process, and he would go on to direct the Hellraiser sequel, Hellbound. So he did part two. Um, So the, the first two, three films, they really kept within the same people that were working on all the, the films that, you know, it connected to this first film. So that's why I think a lot of people, when they watch parts one and two, like, and I'm one of those people, I kind of consider one and two, like just one really long movie that's cut up into two parts. Um, and the reason when you, when you see names like Richard Martin, Tony Randall and whatnot, and they went on to do the second film, but they worked with Clive on the first. You see why it sort of looks like it was all done by Clive, but it really wasn't. It was only the first film. Um, the music, again, he, another man who did the first film connected to the second one as well, uh, Christopher Young. And Christopher, has, honestly, he's done some really decent work in the horror genre. Uh, he worked on films like The Dorm That Drip Blood. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, Freddy's Revenge. I, and I almost fucked that up because when I was thinking about Christopher Young, I'm like, he did the first Nightmare. And then I was like, no, 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 he didn't. It was Charles Bernstein. But I almost kind of fucked that up. And then when I was looking it up, I'm like, ah, ah, ah. No, he did the second one. Um, he worked on Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. He did Trick or Treat, the 1986 film. Yep. Christopher Young did the score for that. I know Fastway did all the popular music that came from that movie, but he did the score. Uh, Hellraiser 2, I did mention that. The Fly 2, The Dark Half, Species, Urban Legend, The Exorcism Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Grudge 2, Drag Me to Hell, and Sinister, among many other films. Those ones, though, are some of my faves, especially that Sinister soundtrack, like the score. That is some haunting shit. <laughs> it's a creepy soundtrack. Um, and Drag Me to Hell is great as well. Now we're going to move on to our starring cast. I want to kind of... I picked the main ones, the main ones that you need, which is basically the Cotton Family and our Cenobites. And that's pretty much all you really need for this film. I know there's other actors involved in the movie and whatnot, but that's the ones we need to know the most about. And I didn't do this in order, like, the the order that they're announced in the film. I kind of switched the order up a bit because I wanted to start with Ashley Lawrence, who actually is the last credit given in the opening credits. Uh, because this was her first feature film. And Ashley plays Kirsty Cotton. And she would also be seen in the sequels Hellraiser 2, uh, Hellraiser 3, and Hellraiser Hellseeker. Um, but she's also been in movies like Lurking Fear, Warlock 3, uh, the movie Mikey. Uh, she was in the movie Red with Tom Sizemore. 
And she was also in the Slipknot video for Snuff, so that's pretty cool. She's done some TV appearances and whatnot as well. Um, as a matter of fact, Creepshow, a uh, series on Shudder. She was in an episode... Oh, uh, was that the one with... Keith David, I think she. I think that was the one she was in. Yeah. Anyways, so here's an interesting tidbit about the whole Kirsty Cotton thing. Um, Ashley was not the first choice. It was Jennifer Tilly. They actually were considering for the role of Kirsty. And don't get me wrong, I love Jennifer Tilly, aka Tiffany, because she will always be Chucky's Tiffany to me. Um, but I'm not going to lie. I'm extremely glad she didn't get the role of Kirsty Cotton because Ashley just seemed perfectly cast for it. And I can't see anyone else playing the role. And I know it may happen one day. I'm not stupid. But in terms of these Hellraiser movies that we've had so far, Ashley Lawrence is definitely Kirsty Cotton. Uh, at least for me, it's like everybody with Doug Bradley, right? Doug Bradley is their pinhead. Well, Ashley Lawrence is my Kirsty Cotton. Um, and I loved, uh, as a matter of fact, I just rewatched it last night, the uh, last drive-in episode where they did uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, and both her and Doug were featured guests on that. Fucking loved it. Oh, so much fun. She's got quite the sense of humor, too, which I like. And the fact that she's a painter and, you know, an artist and whatnot, doing that as well. Like, she's very talented. Moving on to Andrew Robinson as Larry Cotton. He's Kirsty's father. There's more about him I'm going to talk in my notes. I don't want to... Obviously, you know where that's going, because he doesn't just play Larry in this movie, but... Andrew Robinson as Larry Cotton. He was also in films like Dirty Harry. He was in Child's Play 3, Trancers 3, Pumpkinhead 2, Bloodwings. But I think most people are probably going to know him best from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He played the character of Garrick. Claire Higgins as our actual antagonist of this movie, Julia Cotton. Everybody always thinks that the Cenobites are the antagonists. They're really not. It was all Julia. Julia and Frank. I'll talk about Frank in a minute. Anyways, Claire, she can be seen in this movie, Hellraiser 2, the sequel. She's badass in the sequel. Really nailed that role well. Uh, (laughs) She's in The Golden Compass. She was in episodes of Doctor Who. Ready Player One, Into the Badlands, and most recently she was the role of Mad Hetty in Netflix's The Sandman. So she's still acting, and she's damn good, but she's really good in this. I think, honestly, I think when you mention Claire Higgins, most people go to her Hellraiser performances, because as Julia, she, more times than not, she nails it. We're going to move on to Frank now. Frank, Frank Cotton, played by Sean Chapman. Um, There's an interesting note to that I'll add in a second. But anyways, he can also be seen in Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. There's the 2006 uh, World War II movie called Joy Division. I'm really specifying that because I didn't want people to think I'm talking about the band. Um, He was also in a 2010 movie, Psychosis, with Charisma Carpenter. 
And he's the voice of Psycho. Uh, Sir, it's his Sergeant Psycho, I think it is, in the video games Crisis and Crisis Warhead that came out in 2007 and 2008. Now, I mentioned about Sean playing Frank Cotton because there's an interesting note to that. Because I mentioned he's a voice actor. He did voice acting for the video games Crisis and Crisis Warhead. Well, in this movie, there's a rumor that's attached to this, and I really couldn't find anything to confirm it. Granted, I haven't watched... I know there's a few documentaries on this movie series that I haven't watched yet, and I know everyone's like, blasphemy. Yeah, okay. I, there's a lot of things I want to watch, guys. I'm all over the place. But anyways, so there is some documentaries. I haven't watched them yet, so I don't know if it's brought up in there. But I've seen online that the rumor is is that Frank's voice was overdubbed for this movie because Sean Chapman is a British actor and they wanted Frank to have an American accent. The rumor has it that it was Bob Sessions who I guess has done like audiobooks and whatnot, specifically Batman ones, um, that it's his voice that we're hearing when we watch this movie but Sean is playing the corporeal aspect of Frank so Again, couldn't find it actually confirmed. Here's another thing that I thought was kind of interesting. So when Hellraiser was being filmed and they were casting and whatnot, Lance Henriksen was originally offered the role of Frank. Uh, but he turned it down in the fear that if it became successful, he'd have to return multiple times for sequels, and he really didn't want to be tied to a franchise. Funny thing, Lance did end up in a Hellraiser movie after all anyways in 2005 when he was in the direct-to-video sequel Hell World, which is the movie with Henry Cavill and Carrie Payton. Kind of funny. But um, yeah, so Lance was originally supposed to play Frank. He didn't, but then he showed up in Hell World anyways. Uh, so this character is also Frank, kind of. Uh, the actor is Oliver Smith. He's playing skinless Frank, or the Frank monster, if you want to call him that. Um, he and it's funny because he plays Frank in this movie, and then in the Hellraiser two sequel, he plays the character of Browning. Um, he was also uh he was also attached to Doctor Who. He was the character of Drac in a four part story arc of the Twin Dilemma, and this happened in nineteen eighty four. I'm not gonna pretend to know which Doctor that was. <laughs> I think. It might have been the sixth doctor, but I could be wrong on that. Um, I probably am, and someone's listening to this screaming right now. You fucking blasphemer. Yeah, I know. Um, he also had a role in the 1992 film Tale of a Vampire that was based on a story by Edgar Allan Poe. And Oliver Smith, uh, what was the deal with him? I think he actually is voicing his role um, when he's playing the skinless Frank, the Frank that's like all like bloody and shit. It's kind of cool. Okay. On to our Cenobites. Let's start with the top one. Come on. Doug Bradley, lead Cenobite, AKA Hell Priest, AKA Pinhead, AKA whatever you want to call him. And eight Hellraiser films. The second most consistent thing or character in the Hellraiser movies. There's one that shows up more than him. Talk about that later. Anyways, 
He's also been in Nightbreed. He's been in Pumpkinhead, Ashes to Ashes with Lance Henriksen. Go figure. Uh, and Douglas Roberts was in that too. Uh, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. He was in Wrong Turn 5. He was in Scream Park, which is eh, all right. I have seen it. Uh, he was in the three Howard Lovecraft animated movies. He did voice acting for those. And he's uh, most recently been in The Barn Part 2, which I still haven't seen. I know it's doing the trek right now around different theaters and whatnot. So hoping to see that sometime soon. Uh, Doug has also lent his voice to several tracks by the metal band Cradle of Filth. Uh, yeah <laughs> as a matter of fact doug bradley is one of the reasons why i got into cradle of filth in the first place because i found out he did voice like voice work for them and i'm like well oh, all right and that's when i discovered the midian album and since then i've been kind of hooked i like cradle of filth one of them i know they get picked on a lot but whatever and i'm also gonna state you guys will hear this september 6th that's the release date for the episode Tomorrow, tomorrow, on the 7th of September, uh, Doug will be 68 years old. It'll be his birthday. And yeah, I know, don't ever sing again. I heard you. But uh, anyways, yeah. So he will be 68 years old. Please let the man retire from being pinhead. <laughs> 68 years old. I mean, fuck. It doesn't have to be. It's sort of like Robert Englund. As much as we love them and we want them to continue playing those roles they are moving up in age that said doug does not look 68 grace kirby played the female cenobite that was her credit she had six acting credits to her name and while she is seen in the sequel hellbound hellraiser 2 it's technically archive footage because it's also the movie she was replaced as the female cenobite uh, Barbie Wilde took the role over in the second film. So Grace was only in this. And like I said, six acting credits. And this was pretty much the highlight. Uh, Nicholas Vince has Chatterer or Chattering Cenobite. You can also see him in Hellraiser 2. Nightbreed. Uh, he was in a two, the 2018 film Book of Monsters. And a series of short films in 2016 where he played the character of Christopher Cushing. And these short films, they act as spoof trailers or like little three-minute short films or whatever where he and Simon Bamford, along with uh, Corinne Hickey, they play... A, it, what it is is these trailers were spinoffs from the documentary You're So Cool Brewster Story of Fright Night, um, which I, I'm going to jump right next to our Butterball Cenobite because Simon Bamford plays Butterball. He also played Peter Vincent in the spoof trailers, um, which it all started with the You're So Cool Brewster uh, documentary. And then they had these four short films. Um, the short films, actually, I'll tell you the titles of them. I Rip Your Jugular, Werewolf of Moldavia, or Moldavia, Resurrection of Dracula, and Psych Psychedelic Death. Um, and anyways, so yeah, it's Simon, it's Nicholas Vince. And then, like I said, uh, Corinne Hickey, she's also part of it. And they were these little trailers that they put together that were supposed to connect to the you're so cool, you're so cool Brewster documentary and whatnot. So Simon was obviously in that he was also in Clive Barker's book of blood. He was in Nightbreed, uh, and he was in a 2021 low budget flick called 14 ghosts. Uh, that also starred James Lorenz from Street Trash and Frankenhooker. Uh, he was in the movie with Simon as well. 
The runtime for Hellraiser is an hour and 34 minutes long. Nice time length. Not too long, just long enough to enjoy. Rated R for sexual scenes, language, violence, and gore, and frightening scenes. Budget was roughly $1 million. Box office gross was pretty much anywhere between $14.6 million and $20 million. I kept seeing those two numbers bouncing around. So that's that. The synopsis. The synopsis for Hellraiser, taken from the back of a VHS box, goes like this. From beyond the outer darkness. From the blackest corners of a family's past. From the nightmarish realm of the imagination comes Hellraiser. An old family home holds untold mysteries and horrors for Larry Cotton and his wife, Julia. Floorboards that rattle, rooms that absorb blood, the heavy and haunting air of things long past and better left forgotten, all fueled by the fugitive spirit of Larry's brother, Frank, who hovers halfway between this world and the next between extreme pleasure and excruciating pain, and between family devotion and a deadly instinct for survival. Slowly, the old family home begins to swallow the cottons, and there is no escape, for secret alliances and murderous seductions have been made which will propel the cotton family into the horrifying and shocking conclusion of Hellraiser. And for this segment of the show, I'm calling this, We Have Such Sights to Show You. Because, like, seriously, Doug has some awesome quotes throughout the whole series, but even within just this first film. And that's always, uh, between that one and We'll Tear Your Soul Apart, those are two quotes. (laughs) I must say those at least once a week, every week. It's something that's, it's ingrained in like my in my soul, um, so I call this segment "We Have Such Sights to Show You." Except if you lived in Ontario, Canada, in August 1987. So here's the funny thing about this movie: um, a little bit of a tidbit, trivia, whatever. Because Windsor, being in Ontario, this is something that sort of piqued my interest. Hellraiser was technically initially banned in my home province. Uh, by the Ontario Film and Video Review Board. So, (laughs) the funny thing about the film, they deemed it not approved in its entirety as it contravenes community standards. They didn't like that it was, you know, violent. They didn't like that there was bloodletting and the, you know, the horror and the torture in the film. They didn't like it. And keep in mind, we're talking mid to late 80s, Satanic panic and its fucking heyday at that time and whatnot. And censors are, you know, a little too anal for their time. So this movie almost didn't see an Ontario release. Uh, the other provinces would have gotten it, but not Ontario. They had to actually cut 40 seconds specifically out of the film in order to give it an R rating, and then it would be allowed in theaters. Uh, 35 seconds of it is the... Um, the torture scenes with the hooks 
pulling at the face and ripping the skin and stuff like that. And then also the scene where the rats, um, you know, um, the scene where like, uh, Larry and Julia go upstairs and cause Larry thinks he hears a noise and they show the rats. They're like nailed to the wall and they're still sort of alive and whatnot. Anyways, that scene, they actually took that out in the initial release here in Ontario. And, now with Blu-ray and DVD and all that sort of stuff, obviously we've seen those scenes now, but those were uh, originally taken out. Um, and there were other cuts to the film, apparently really minor in importance. Like they didn't really change anything, but the MPAA was forcing Clive to sort of cut scenes with Julia and Frank where their interactions were a lot more sexual or sexually violent. Um, he was explaining the whole thing about how uh so what is it, it there's there's one scene where like frank is allowed to slap julia's ass twice but if he did it a third time they considered it obscene it was really weird like i was reading about some of this stuff i'm like the way people thought in the 80s it's funny because we talk about like today how people are so close-minded which in some ways we are but man the 80s was a Fucking rough time for movies. It really was. Um, and then there's the title of the movie. Originally, this is something that went through changes as well, because originally they were going to call the movie The Hellbound Heart, based off the book. Studio didn't like the name, though. They said it sounded too much like a romance, and they were afraid that people would get the wrong idea of it. Okay. Um, so then Clive Barker being, you know, the cheeky bastard he is turns around and says okay let's name it sadomasochists from beyond the grave yeah they didn't go for that either apparently too too overtly sexual (laughs) okay um anyway so hellraiser came i fuck if i remember who it was i know he he basically said you know to all the different crew members and whatnot someone come up with a name and i the rumor I heard was it was a janitor that came up with Hellraiser. I don't know if it really was or not. But the part that made me laugh the most was the fact that a 60-year-old female uh, crew member, her idea for the title for this movie should, was what a woman will do for a good fuck. And honestly, I feel like it's a lost opportunity that never happened. <laughs> because that's basically what this movie is. Um, more or less. Uh, and then... Let's talk about the Cenobite designs for a sec, uh, because they sort of went through different changes and looks as well. But most of the designs were based on influences that Clive took from, you know, the punk fashion, obviously. You see that uh, some of their look is very reminiscent of, let's say, like Suicide in Return of the Living Dead, right? So, I mean, you get the punk fashion part and then a little bit of Catholicism. Leave it to Clive to go down that path. But anyways, he sort of took that, blended it with the punk fashions, and then also he went to a lot of S&M clubs in New York and Amsterdam, so he took what he saw from there, and he mixed that in with the Cenobite look, and then he also got some ideas from African fetish sculptures, and all of that put all together, mixed in a blender, hit puree, and we got Cenobites. Uh, the makeup for the female Cenobite is what caused Grace Kirby to actually walk away from the series. Uh, first off, it took three hours to apply. She was very uncomfortable in it, and it, she couldn't sit because of the way that the, her leather suit was. 
made it very hard for her to sit. When they came to her for the sequel and said, would you like to be part of, you know, Hellbound? She basically refused, and that's why Barbie Wilde was brought in to play the role of the female Cenobite in the second film. Doug's makeup, interestingly enough, he learned to apply it himself at the same time. So in later films, when we would see the credit for the makeup, sometimes Doug's name was popped in there as well because he started to figure out how to do his own makeup. Now, initially, it took six hours to apply. Back during the filming of the first film, it took six hours every day to apply his makeup. As the years went on, he, sort of like Robert Englund as well, Robert Englund learned to do certain things with his own makeup because they did it so many times. But in Doug's case, they would actually credit him in the films as part of the you know makeup team. Um, and the sequels. So the sequels went through changes as well. Because originally, you know, the creative team behind these Hellraiser films, they wanted Julia to be the primary antagonist. That's what this was all about. It was always the original plan was that Julie, Julie, Julia was the bad guy. You know what I mean? She's the re- she's the protagonist. She's the one that sets all of this in motion all the time. But as with like Halloween, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, Fans took to certain characters, and in this case, it was Pinhead, the Hell Priest. But Pinhead is a name that a crew member gave, you know, Doug, like Doug's character, while they were putting the makeup on stuff, we call him Pinhead. And that got out, and by the time Hellraiser 2 came around, that's what the fans were calling him, was Pinhead, and that's pretty much been his name since. Like I said, some of us, knowing the source material and whatnot, call him Hell Priest, or, you know, in this, he's actually credited as lead Cenobite. They didn't even have a name for him at the time. So, anyways, the whole idea of Julia being the primary antagonist, that finally got scrapped, and the Cenobites became more of a focus. They were actually supposed to be a background character. They were never meant to be the focus. Um, so that's that. Now let's get into review time. I'm actually going to talk about the review of this. I'm doing this now in a new format. Because after the Howard the Duck review I did several weeks back, I actually liked the idea of how I reviewed that. I did that with an, it was an eight-point structure. I kind of really liked that. And then last week when I did Prey, I kind of strayed away from it. I realized I kind of want to do that again. So... I'm calling this segment for now, anyways, the quick eight, which is eight points that I take away from this film, why I either like or dislike films. Um, So number one for Hellraiser is the story. Definitely the story. The story is what sells it. And Doug Bradley will even tell you himself about this new reimagined Hellraiser. If the story works, that's all that should matter. Um, And in this case, that's exactly it. The movie stays on point, it doesn't stray too much, it moves quickly, and while opening us up to new worlds and concepts, like the whole idea of Leviathan and, you know, the labyrinth and everything like that, which in this film, it only grazes the surface, it's Hellbound 2 where we, you know, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 where we see the full of the labyrinth, we see Leviathan, we see everything else, Um, but in this film, it just sort of scratches the surface a little but it keeps it simple enough that we can stay invested in the characters while still feeling tangled 
in that labyrinth of questions and intrigue and, you know, wonderment and whatnot. Like, because the first Hellraiser film, I mean, you walked into it going, um, what the fuck is going on here? But at the same time, it was still a good enough story that you didn't, you didn't have to understand everything to still enjoy. And so, you know, the strength of the story definitely keeps people, um, you know, totally engaged. And then there's the second point, and probably the point that gets highlighted more than any other point when talking about the first Hellraiser is the practical effects. It's a gooey movie, very wet. Uh, New York Times even called the movie's effects damp. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of saturation. There's a lot of wet and, you know, dripping and stuff like that. It's a lot of the effects in this movie. Um, as a matter of fact, when I introduced one of my friends to this movie, she might have gagged a few times. <laughs> um, but it was it, it's that kind of movie, right? Um, very society-ish in terms of the way the the blood and the effects look. If you're familiar with society, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but I will say, because they're practical effects, a few of them do look dated. It is not a perfect movie in in the case that, you know, the the effects look perfect even in 2022. No. Uh, Frank's escape from hell when he's first coming out of the floorboards and stuff like that, it doesn't hold up as well as it did the first time we saw it. I mean, it's more or less when the two arms shoot out of the floorboards that looks kind of really hokey. Um and then there's the engineer's look. The engineer is basically that character that we see when Kirsty first enters the labyrinth through the hospital walls. And there's that character that's sort of like a, um, you know, an upright earwig <laughs> kind of thing uh, with like a scorpion's tail and its head is down near the ground. That thing, that's the engineer. Um, sort of like Rawhead Rex, where. At the time, it worked. It was still a little hokey, but you understood because they were going all practical. Today's day and age, what with CGI being able to make some of those characters look a little more realistic, yeah. I'll be curious to see if the engineer does show up in the new reiteration of Hellraiser and which direction they go with it. Um, but I mean, at the same time, though, the the, the practical effects in this movie still managed to maintain a horrific look and most fans do continue to admire the film for its attempt to avoid computer-based graphics especially in 1987 when computer graphics were still sort of like the last starfighter you know very atari like so you didn't want to go that route uh point number three even though, okay, so yes, the book is better than the movie. We hear this with many films, primarily Stephen King, but more so than not, you always hear that argument, book is better than the movie. In this case, that also applies, but this movie still hits hard and still maintains its own place in history, or hell, uh, due to its solid creativity and reception. Uh, so... Here's the thing. This is kind of interesting because 
in the book, you remember that quote I said at the very beginning of the review when I was talking about the light and breathy voice of an excited girl and whatnot? Yes, in the book, Cenobites are genderless, but lean more to a feminine side, at least in terms of the pinhead character. Um, And that's why Jamie Clayton is going to be playing that role, because this is something that Clive wants to do this time around. What's awesome about this is that this movie was not afraid to stray a little bit from the source material, especially after they saw they had something special with Doug. And putting Doug in the role of the lead Cenobite, despite the original source material, was actually a genius move. One that is almost hard for people to let go of now. But it did help to cement the movie's historical status as iconic and beloved. And on top of that, we now have this character of Pinhead, who's up there with characters like Jason, Michael Myers, and Chucky. Like, they're so iconic that their own presence actually precedes the reputation of these movies. Um, Speaking of Doug, point number four. Uh, And, I mean, let's be honest it'd be a crime to gloss over the performance that you know made hellraiser what it was what it would become what fans have had a hard time letting go of and as i've said hell priest pinhead lead cenobite whatever you want to call it as much as maybe it wasn't the direction in the original intent he became the face of the franchise and i mean Here's here's something that's interesting is that keep in mind, yes, that's all Doug, but was it? Because when he was filming this first film, he actually asked Clive, how do you want me to play this? How do you want me to do this character of a pinhead, of a, a priest, hell priest, late Cenobite, whatever? I like he even says, like, they came up with the idea that, you know, the Cenobites would have human origins. But that was something that was never even realized until they moved on to the the second movie. Um, But he didn't know how to approach this character. So Barker basically told him, he said, think of this Cenobite as being a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who's responsible for running a hospital. The hospital has no wards, only operating theaters. You also have to be the man who wields the knife and you have to be the man who keeps the timetable going. That's what he, he, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but it's more or less what he told Doug he had to do. And Doug said when he read the script for the first time, he saw Pinhead as a cross between Oscar Wilde and Noel Coward. Um, And there's also the, uh, the, the the aspect of Doug's voice. This is uh, this is saying something when originally that voice was supposed to be overdubbed as well because he's got a British voice. And, you know, New World Productions was like, no, no, he's got to be overdubbed. Then they saw his performance. And they said, fuck it, we'll just leave it. <laughs> because it was just too good to mess with. They, they realized, they're like, oh, shit, this is amazing, you know. Um, during an interview, Doug Bradley described this whole hell world, this whole labyrinth and whatnot, he said it was like a prison. And he said, the Cenobites are the prison guards and Pinhead is the prison warden. And the puzzle box is the key to the prison cell and the demons are all escaped inmates. That's a way to approach it that even my first time watching it, I didn't even see that. And it was like, 
years later when I'm watching it and, you know, trying to de- describe Cenobites can be kind of difficult. And the fact that he was able to do that, and this is something that I, I even saw it on the last drive-in, you know, episode when they talked uh, to him and Ashley Lawrence about Hell, you know, Hellbound 2 and all this, uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 and all that. I never actually really thought much about it other than they were just like gatekeepers. And the way he described it, that they're prison guards and, you know, it's Frank is like an escaped prison inmate. So they have to go get him and bring him back. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. And I mean, okay, I I don't want to focus on the things that I obviously don't like about Revelations and Judgment. Those are two sequels that I kind of don't even include in the whole Hellraiser world, uh, like, because I love parts one through eight, and I'm that weird guy that's like, yeah, I, I don't mind Hellworld, and people are like, the movie sucks. I like it, okay, whatever. Um, but no offense to uh, Stephen Smith Collins or Paul T. Terrell, Taylor, sorry. <laughs> there goes the tongue. Um, but anyways, they just could not replace Doug in the final two sequels. And I will say, though, that and I agree with this. Paul, when he played the role in Judgment, I haven't finished Judgment. Maybe I should give it that chance. But he's not actually my problem with that movie because he's received some praise from critics and fans and whatnot. And I'm with them on that. Like, he's not the problem. He has a close to accurate portrayal of Doug's pinhead. Uh, It's the messy story that ruins that one. But... With so many, and I've seen it uh, a lot lately, with so many people saying that how Doug is the pinhead, I'm one of those fans as well. I'm I'm not saying I'm not. I he's absolutely dear to my heart. He it's like I always say, Brad Dourif is gonna always be Chucky. Um, you know, I'm one of those fans. But I will say though, I'm still eager to see Jamie Clayton's version of this Cenobite. Because of the fact that Clive is attached to it, because Doug has shown, you know, dedication and support to the actress's attempt, I am looking forward to it. But it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tall order for her to, I don't think she's going to top it. And I don't, to be fair, I don't think we should be asking her to. I think we should just be asking her to play the role as she feels she can. Point number five, the Cottons. Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty, Andrew Robinson as Larry, and Claire Higgins as Julia. So, let's talk about Ashley quickly. Great performance, especially since it was her debut appearance in a feature film. She was very natural, didn't overact or dial it up. It was very believable. Except, I do have to ask, who the fuck gets turned on by some dude pretending to swallow a cigarette? I don't get that scene when they're at the dinner table and the dude's like flicking the cigarette in and out of his mouth and she's getting turned on by it. It's like you had to be drunk. He, like the character of Kirsty, that is. I mean, she is. We know that. But it's like even drunk. Do you still get turned on by that? I don't know. Aside from that scene, though, I honestly think that Ashley was definitely the right choice. As much as Jennifer Tilly is an awesome actress, I'm glad they stuck with Ashley Lawrence. Uh, which one do I talk about here first? Um, Let's go with... Okay, we'll go with Claire. So Claire Higgins as Julia, perfectly played. 
starting off somewhat conflicted about her feelings towards Frank and Larry, but becoming more linear as she chooses to give her allegiance and loyalty to Frank. Um, and I mean, again, a lot of people look to the Cenobites as being the top antagonists of the Hellraiser series. Future, you know, obviously the other sequels that happens, but in this one, it's Julia. Julia is the fucking villain here, guys. Um, and Claire, here's the funny thing about Claire. Claire hates horror film, horror movies. She's been quoted as saying she hated horror movies, and she hasn't even seen this movie in its entirety. She went in to see it for, I think it was like the premiere, and 10 minutes in, she walked out. Uh, she hates she hates horror films, but she does it awesome in this. She owns this movie as the proper lead antagonist. Uh, enough can't be said about her performance, but... Here's the thing about Andrew Robinson as Larry. First off, his name is changed from the novella. Again, another deviant uh, deviance from the source material. In the novella, he was known as Rory. In this, he's known as Larry. Um, the thing is, is that would highlight... This is why I, I chose to do him as third uh, when talking about the Cottons is because he's playing two Cottons. To a degree. Um... Because for the most of the movie, he's Larry. And he's sort of... He's like that guy that's sort of like plain. We don't see what's really so interesting about him. The only reason why Julia probably even married him is because she couldn't have Frank, so she went with his brother kind of thing. He's sort of that guy. And then all of a sudden, when Frank kills Larry... And where's his skin? Now Andrew Robinson is playing the role of Frank. And it is such a wonderful switch. And he gets overlooked by so many fucking critics. And, okay, rightfully so, yes. We we highlight the dread of the film, the, the effects, the story plots, all that sort of stuff. The Cenobites, yes. All of that deserves its recognition. But Andrew's conversion from playing Larry, the plain Jane kind of guy, to Frank. And all of a sudden, it's the come to daddy guy. And he's like, just, it's like a switch fucking turns on him. And all he's playing someone completely different. And playing it to the level that Sean Chapman did. It's criminally ignored. And yes, Jesus should weep over it. Because even that, the whole line, Jesus wept. Originally, he's supposed to say, fuck this. That was the line he was supposed to read was, fuck this. He's the one that told Clive, no, man, I got to do it. I got to say Jesus wept. Knowing the character of Frank. So that means he, he almost studied the whole character of Larry and Frank at the same time to pull this off. Magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. And it gets overlooked every time. Point number six. Christopher Young's score. It's iconic and very recognizable, which is interesting because I read reviews where, you know, some people were actually saying they felt the score was very uninspired. Yeah, okay, whatever. Go away. Uh, <laughs> anyways, he had just done uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Invaders from Mars. Clive originally wanted the electronic group Coil to do the score for Hellraiser. He said that their music made his bowels churn, which is kind of funny. But um, he thought they would be perfect for the film's score. New World, on the other hand, was sitting there saying, nope, we don't want Coil. So Tony Randall, the producer and uncredited editor, 
basically says to Clive, hey, there's this guy, Christopher Young. He just did scores for Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Invaders from Mars. Why don't we get him? They bring him in. He does the score for Hellraiser. And what do we get? We get a great gothic score that matches beautifully with, you know, this stylish hell that Barker has created. The music goes great with the visuals on the screen. It works amazingly. I will also add that in 2017, the score was re-released on vinyl for the 30th anniversary by two different record labels, both being uh, Lakeshore Records and Death Waltz. And to my knowledge, the Lakeshore Records variant is now out of print, but the Death Waltz Records, there's still one variant left that you can get through Mondo. Move on to point number seven, the look, the aesthetic, the the... The imagery of the Cenobites, the stretched flesh, the leather, the blood, the scarification, the uh, the whole S&M from the darkest pits of hell. I'm not going to lie. Teenage me, uh, when I first saw the first Hellraiser, like the first time I ever saw Hellraiser, I was what, might have been 13, 14 years old. And I'm not going to lie, I might have suffered a bit of minor anxiety the first time I ever saw the Chatterer. Yeah, he's the one that freaked me out, uh, also known as the Angel of Suffering, apparently. But uh, the whole Chatterer, that one fucked me up as a kid. I was like, um, that's scary. And yeah, and I'm not going to lie, like this movie as a whole doesn't scare me, but there's some imagery that was kind of like, yeah, I can feel my skin crawling. Um, and Chatterer is like a character with no dialogue, just has these like chattering teeth and whatever, and still able to ignite Nightmare fuel. Um, yeah. Uh, the female Cenobite, uh, also known as Sister Nicoletta. They never actually say that in the film. I found out a lot of these things after through different comic books and whatnot. But anyways, uh, she was definitely scary looking, but it's the voice that accompanied that character that made it much more freakier for me. Um, I don't know. It, because I'm seeing what Jamie Clayton's pinhead is going to look like, and she's got like that sort of like the neck thing that the the female Cenobite had in the original Hellraiser, I'm sort of wondering if Grace Kirby's Cenobite was pars- partly what the lead Cenobite could have looked like as well. Um, she obviously didn't have the pins in her head, but she had sort of the same shape, and but she had the neck thing, and... They're doing that with the new pinhead. So I kind of wonder if some of the Cenobites also like, you know, borrowed bits and pieces from each other when they were recreating them. Um, And in the comics, kind of interesting. So the female Cenobite has a sister that was known as Abigor. And there's not a whole lot known about Abigor's past or whatever, other than she had a sister and it was this character, the female Cenobite. Um, And then there's Butterball which apparently he was also known as the surgeon. Uh, He's just ominous looking and gut splitting. Um, And I say that not in a funny kind of way, but in a horrifically painful kind of way, because if you actually look at his stomach, it's like split open and it's supposed to be something about because in his human form, this came out later, obviously, but in his human form, apparently he ate a lot and he had like this like, he food was his addiction more or less. So then when he comes along the lament configuration and whatnot, 
part of his otherworldly hell was that his stomach would be split open. So I don't know. I'm not gonna lie. Like this, this movie is a beloved film in my heart. Whatever, but Cenobite, the Cenobites themselves, it might have caused me some sheer anxiety. <laughs> and finally, point eight, and then we're gonna wrap this whole thing up. Uh, and it has to be talked about. The, there is something so iconic with this film that it was in all ten films. Something that. Not even Doug Bradley can claim to. The Lament configuration. Or the Lamar... What, how, how is it pronounced? Le Marchand configuration? Um, it's the little Rubik's Cube box from hell. You know, that means to summon the Cenobites, the connection to Leviathan, the Lord of the Labyrinths. It all starts with this damn puzzle box. And that box has become possibly just as iconic as Pinhead himself. I mean, personal note for me to know this, but Ice Nine Kills and their latest album, they did a song tributing Hellraiser. The song's called The Box. Um, In all of the films, The Box is synonymous with the Hellraiser franchise. It's been the one constant in all ten films. You don't have that box. You don't have your doorway to hell. And I mean, it the look of it, everything is just. Even people that don't have, you know, have hardly any inclination to watch a Hellraiser movie. They see those. There's the memes online of like Curious George playing with the lament configuration. People know what that's from. They see Winnie the Pooh holding the Lament configuration. They know what it's from. You know, like, they, they they see pictures of, like, a Rubik's Cube and that thing sitting next to it. They know what it means. They know what it's about. It's something that it, it surpasses even the movie's legacy itself. That box is what makes all of this fucking work. Um, and I might even add another constant that's connected to this film is the positive reception of it. Uh, not everyone is on board, uh, but the but fans are quite passionate, especially about the first two films. I've noticed that the first two, Hellraiser and Hellbound, they they get a lot of love. Um, as a matter of fact, like this one is holding a six point nine out of ten on IMDb, with seven and eight being the two highest ratings. If I remember correctly, Hellbound, Hellraiser two is like at six point five. Like, it's only underneath by 0.4%. So, I mean, they're both very beloved films. Rotten Tomatoes has this film holding a 71% approval rating. And on Letterboxd, it stands at 3.5 out of 5. I took two quotes. One in favor of, one against. Uh, British magazine, uh, it's a music magazine called Melody Maker. They described this as the best horror film to ever be made in Britain. Pretty sure the Wicker Man might want to give it a fight on that, but uh, it's. I really can't argue that comment. Like, in, in terms of British films, Hellraiser might be my favorite one. Uh, and then we'll take good old Roger Ebert, and he gave the film one and a half stars out of four, claimed it was as dreary a piece of goods. Um. 
and uh, he basically said like that this movie he's called it dreary said it was like a movie that was pretending to masquerading was the word he used is masquerading as a horror film when it was actually nothing but a bunch of uh bile basically he said it's a movie without wit style or reason and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. I don't know what he movie he watched. I honestly don't. I don't know where he thought that this had no imagination to it. Um, <laughs> but whatever. It's Roger Ebert, right? We don't really give a shit. Podcast zero rating. Let's Let's wrap this up. Let's get the hell out of here, right? In my early teen years, when I saw this, let's go back in time to a younger time when, you know, I I, I was a, a handsome looking boy. No, I wasn't. But anyways, um, I was an ugly duckling as a teenager. I admit it. I'm not afraid to. Anyways, when I saw this, it did what so many films of the 80s failed to do. It freaked me the fuck out. In the 80s, Films, the franchises had become cheesy. They were funny. I mean, you look at Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy became a joke of himself. It was always about, you know, his quips and his joke cracking and shit like that. Friday the 13th was, you know, uh oh, you had sex, you're going to die. Oh, you did drugs, you're going to die. It became sort of a joke in itself. Halloween. They tried to take themselves seriously, but let's face it, some of those movies were kind of laughable. Texas Chainsaw Massacre intentionally went the dark comedy route. Like, part two is more funny than it is scary. And then there's Evil Dead that, okay, the first one was scary. Second one, well, it was scary, but still laughable because people found funny things in the first Evil Dead they thought was funny. So then when the second one came out, they amped up the humor and then by the time we got the army of darkness it was like pure on comedy uh so many of those franchises were adding the yucks to it basically they were making people laugh then hellraiser comes along and hellraiser 2 follows and both films are dark and they're serious and it's like we're here to scare you and it worked it worked at least at the time it came out. Now, people today may watch these movies and go, yeah, well, you know, there's other movies that have pushed the limits a lot further. You're not wrong. But then you look at this movie and you look at the iconic performances of Doug Bradley, Ashley Lawrence, Andrew Robinson, Sean Chapman, Claire Higgins, Nicholas Vince even as the chatterer. Damn it, man doesn't say a word. Still, my hair stood up on its end the first time I saw him. This is a lifelong favorite that it justifies my claims when I say it's a nine chains out of hell, nine chains of hell out of ten in my mind. I fucked that up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but you get my point. My point is, is that I love this movie and I admit that a part of me really loves Hellbound just as much. It's really hard for me to walk away from one or the other saying one is better than the other. I love a lot of what this movie does. I love a lot of what the sequel does. To me, they're a two-part, one movie. Like, it's... But I'm also going to say, and I said this earlier, and I'd be lying if I said that I'm not excited to see this new reimagining, you know, coming to Hulu October 7th. Like, 
I might also add it because I didn't say it earlier. It's directed by David Bruckner and produced by David S. Goyer and Clive Barker, of course. But those are some big names. Like, and Clive is really happy with this thing. He seems like he's really looking forward to it. So, so am I. But talking about Hellraiser 1987, this is the initial film. This is the one that started it all. It has a deep place in my hellbound heart. And nothing's going to replace it from that spot either. But honestly, I'm not asking this new movie to do that either. That's something I think people should keep in mind. Let's not ask the new movie to be better than this. Let's not ask the new actress to be better than Doug Bradley. Let's just let it be what it is. and Do we enjoy it? And for this movie, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. A lot of people hover around that 7 and 8 mark. For me, it's 9. 9 chains of hell out of 10. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you for listening. I know this episode's a little bit longer this week. Uh, Hellraiser is uh, a, a movie that there's a lot to talk about. This was a bigger movie. This is, it's going to be like when I do my, you know, when I do an episode for the movie The Thing. It's not going to be a short episode. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I'm pretty glad my voice has held up as well as it has. I can feel it starting to go. It's like I've been talking an awful long time. And that's not to mention all the edits that were taken out of this thing. I've been recording for actually a couple hours now. So, anyways, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I hope uh, everyone is having a great Labor Day. Yay for Labor Day, a holiday that celebrates the working person. I think last year I said working man, and then I was like, hmm, 2021, probably shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, if you had a holiday, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Mine wasn't too bad. Hung out with some friends. Played that new uh so Universal Studio Monsters, the gay the board game Horrified. I recommend it. It was a lot of fun. Took that in last night. That was that was some fun shit. It was a lot of the, it was really good game to play. First game the monsters beat us, but then when we started to figure out how to strategize a little bit better with the game and stuff, we beat the monsters. Yay! Um always gotta feel bad for Frankenstein's monster though because he really wasn't a bad guy he didn't ask for his circumstances they were thrown on him and the damn public said to hell with you burn him at the stake yeah anyways <laughs> I don't mean to take this all seriously and I'll have everyone all be like oh man I'm so depressed now no I didn't mean for that to happen anyways the podcast you know where you can find it it's always available on streaming services like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google. Um, for those of you who may have noticed, I, I don't know what the issue is with CastBox. Uh, for some people that do use that one, for some reason it hasn't updated the last two weeks. I don't know what's up with that. I can't tell you. Um, I, for whatever reason, it's not updating. But I, you can still find it on Podbean. Um FM player like a lot of the different podcast streaming services do have it so I apologize if you use CastBox and it's not working maybe you go to Spotify or whatever um, 
in terms of social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's You'll find the show on there. And there's the email, whatlurksbehindpodcastzero at gmail.com. I pretty much talked a lot. I talked way too much. I'm sure somebody's just itching to tell me to shut the fuck up. You need to shut the fuck up. The box. You opened it. We came.